Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Over the last few years, maybe going back a decade or so, a new catchphrase or cliche has been adopted not only in pro football but also in other sports. It's a phrase whose actual origin is in debate, but it's totally a part of football lexicon. A phrase that was made famous by New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick when he says simply, next man up. It was indeed next man up for the New York Jets in their season opening game against division rival Buffalo Bills on Monday Night Football a few weeks back. You see, you would know if you hadn't been living under a rock for the last five months. Heading into the year, Aaron Rodgers was going to be the new starting quarterback for the New York Jets. He left the land of cheeseheads and frozen tundra of Green Bay to go to Gotham and deliver the New York Jets that elusive Super Bowl title they have been searching for since Joe Namath and the famous guarantee. Yet, as luck would have it, or more specifically, Jets luck, Rodgers' 2023 season lasted only four plays. I'll say that again. It lasted four plays! Now comes the backup, Zach Wilson as he will attempt to pilot the Jets through the competitive AFC East. And in this case, not only will he be attempting to step into the big shoes of Aaron Rodgers, but also add his name to a stellar list of backup quarterbacks who shined when their opportunity came. Hello sports fans, greetings, salutations, and all that sort of stuff. I'm Dana Augusta, your host and sports history tour guide here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we highlight what is going on in the world of sports, but we put a historical spin on it. In this episode, we'll look at the guys who came off the bench to play the most demanding position in sports and made it look easy. What are we talking about? Well, who were some of the best and most famous backup quarterbacks who came through where it all had seemed lost? Some became legends while replacing legends. Some became legendary themselves just by being ready at a moment's notice. Then there are some backups that came into a game and had unbelievable performances and disappeared just as quickly as they entered. However, all of these men behind the men had their moment in the spotlight and we will shine a spotlight on some of them in this episode. Later in the podcast, we'll do something new and a little different. Since the NFL is underway, we're going to take a look at the matchups for this week, which is week four, and take five 
games that are rematches of great historical games taking place this week. Also, in this week's games, it includes a regular season game that ended one team's dubious losing streak, a season finale in which the losing team, that finished the year with only two losses, missed the postseason entirely, and a playoff game in the 1990s that is remembered for one of the most unbelievable passes in NFL history that defied both logic and seemingly physics. To round out the show is our shout-out segment, segment, and we're going to be sending a shout-out to a sports documentary that this week is celebrating the anniversary of its release. The release came at the perfect time because of what was going on at the time, and now, close to 30 years after its release, it is still considered one of the greatest sports documentaries ever made. All of that and more coming up on this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we put a historical spin on current sports headlines. Historically Speaking Sports, which is a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, You can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Every NFL team and fan will have to deal with have to deal with this from time to time. And that is when your team's starting quarterback goes down with an injury. Or sometimes your starting quarterback is struggling mightily and the backup quarterback suddenly becomes the most popular player in town. For the New York Jets, after four plays in week one on Monday Night Football of all places, Zach Wilson was thrust into the spotlight in Gotham, replacing Aaron Rodgers for the foreseeable future. And that got me thinking about who are some of the most famous backup quarterbacks ever to lace them up in the NFL. Some of those who came off the bench cold and came through in the clutch. 
Now, some made their name for one game and was like a meteor flying through the night sky, while others came through for most of the season and found success. There are several levels of success in the NFL from the backup quarterback role. There are situations like when Tom Brady came in for an injured Drew Bledsoe in 2001 and became a legend. Or similarly, Kurt Warner, who came in for the St. Louis Rams in 1999 and led the Rams to two Super Bowl appearances in three years after bagging groceries at a Hy-Vee supermarket in Iowa. There are several of these instances and we'll take a look at a few of these. Now, if there is such a thing as a professional backup quarterback, it would have to be a man by the name of Earl Morrill. Now, if you had to compare him to someone that is somewhat familiar to contemporary fans, it would have to be, if you squint hard enough, maybe Ryan Fitzpatrick. And just like Fitzmagic, Morrill played for several different teams doing his 21-year career in the NFL. He was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers right out of Michigan State in 1956, and after one season there, he bounced around beginning with the Steelers and then two stints with the Giants. And then in 1966, in his 10th year in the league, he landed in Baltimore playing behind the legend John Unitas. In 1968, Morrow was called in to replace an injured Unitas who suffered an elbow injury during the preseason. Morrow came in and essentially set the world on fire, as well as the NFL. That season, Morrow did a little more than just fill in for Unitas. He led the Colts to a 13-1 regular season record and was named league MVP that year, passing for just shy of 3,000 yards and 26 touchdown passes in only 14 regular season games. In the playoffs, he and the Colts demolished the Vikings and the Browns to advance to Super Bowl III. And unfortunately, Morrow's magic carpet ride crash-landed on the turf of the Orange Bowl. To say that he struggled would be an understatement. Morrow would go a measly 6 of 17 for just 71 yards and 3 interceptions before, lifted, before being lifted for a less than 100% Unitas. The result? The Jets changed the course of pro football, beating the Colts 16-7 in one of the biggest upsets in pro sports history. Yet Morrill's story is not quite over. He would have some redemption. Two seasons later, and ironically at the scene of the crime, the Super Bowl once again in Miami, the Colts were playing the Cowboys in Super Bowl V. Unitas injured his ribs in the second quarter, and Morrill came off the bench to right the ship and helped lead the Colts to their first Super Bowl win, beating the Cowboys 16-13 on a last-second field goal by Jim O'Brien. Now, that would be a great way to end Morrow's story, but it actually gets better. The next season, Morrow was traded to the Miami Dolphins and reunited with his old coach, Don Shula, who had coached the Colts to Super Bowl III. The Dolphins were an up-and-coming team and that was born in, in the American Football League as an expansion team. By the beginning of the 1972 regular season, Morrow was brought in as what Don Sheila would later call an insurance policy. Well, that policy had to be used in week 5 of the 72 season when the Dolphins' starting quarterback, Bob Greasy, broke his ankle against the San Diego Chargers on October the 15th. 
So who came in to save the day and the Dolphins season after starting 5-0? That insurance policy, Earl Morrow. In relief against the Chargers, Morrow would go 8-10 of 10 for 86 yards and two touchdown passes to win that game and lead the Dolphins to wins in the next 11 consecutive games as the Dolphins would go undefeated for the remainder of the 1972 season. In the playoffs, Morrow would defeat the Browns in the first round of the playoffs, but he struggled in that game. Yet, in the AFC title game in Pittsburgh just one week after the Immaculate Reception, Morrow was lifted in the second half for a now healthy Bob Greasy. And as they say, the rest is history. The Dolphins would go on to conclude their undefeated season, beating Washington in Super Bowl VII. Morrow would hang around until he announced his retirement in 1977, ending his 21-year career in the NFL. Another quarterback that played 20-plus seasons in the NFL was George Blanda. Now, he was a great starting quarterback during the early years of the AFL with the Houston Oilers, leading them to a pair of AFL championships about the late 1960s. He was relegated to a backup role with the Houston with the uh, Oakland Raiders. Then came the season of 1970, where Blanda, in the words of Hall of Fame broadcaster Bill King, became Superman. Blanda, at the age of 43, came off the bench against the Pittsburgh Steelers in place of an injured Daryl LaMonica and threw three touchdown passes to beat Pittsburgh and rookie sensation Terry Bradshaw. The next week, Blanda, as a kicker, gave the Raiders a tie against the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Then on November 8th, he came off the bench once again against the Cleveland Browns, the first time they had ever met by the way, and threw a touchdown late to tie the game with a minute and 34 remaining. Then he drilled a 53-yard field goal with three seconds remaining to beat Cleveland. Then the next week, Blanda again with more heroics, found receiver Fred Belitnikoff in the corner of the end zone at Mile High Stadium in the final seconds to conclude a comeback against the Broncos. Blanda's heroics during the 1970 season earned him the Associated Press Player of the Year Award. He was called upon one more time in the season of 70 in season of 1970 to spell to spell an injured Daryl LaMonica. And this time it would be in the AFC Championship game where the Raiders were facing the Colts in Baltimore and what historians would later call the duel in the dust. Blanda would come in after LaMonica was knocked out of the game by Colts defensive tackle Bubba Smith and kept the game close, going 17 of 32 for 217 yards and two touchdowns. However, it was Johnny Unitas and the Colts pulling away late in the fourth quarter, winning 27 to 17. Blanda and Morrow are two quarterbacks that came in clutch, came in, in clutch situations for various times during certain seasons. Then there are some that came through for one game and became cult heroes. For example, there was Frank Reich, who on January the 3rd, 1993, replaced an injured Jim Kelly and led the Buffalo Bills to the biggest postseason comeback in NFL history, erasing a 35-3 deficit to the Houston Oilers to win 41-38. Another such player came through when the whole country was watching, and this took place on Thanksgiving Day 1974 in Dallas. The Cowboys were playing the Washington Redskins at Texas Stadium. 
and with the Cowboys trailing 16-3, Roger Staubach, aka Captain America, was knocked out of the game and was replaced by an unknown rookie named Clint Longley. Now with the Cowboys down by 13, Longley went to work, finding Billy Joe Dupree for a 35 touchdown early in the fourth. Dallas will regain the lead on a one-yard Walt Garrison touchdown run. Washington will regain the lead, but then, with less than two minutes remaining, Longley uncorked a 50-yard bomb to receiver Drew Pearson for the go-ahead touchdown to edge Washington 24-23 in a game that every Thanksgiving is brought up and keeps the legend of Clint Longley alive. Another quarterback that came, became a legend for backup duty was a former starter that was demoted to backup but came in clutch in a game that his team would ultimately lose. The date was January the 2nd, 1982 in a humid and sweltering Orange Bowl. It was the AFC Divisional Playoff game between the Miami Dolphins and the San Diego Chargers. The Dolphins were led by starting quarterback David Woodley and his backup was quarterback Don Strzok. At the time, the Dolphins coach Don Shula liked to alternate the two quarterbacks depending upon the situation, prompting the Miami media to nickname the quarterback carousel Woodstrock. Strock had been with the Dolphins since 1973 after starring at Virginia Tech, and on that afternoon in 1982 in a divisional playoff game, the Chargers stormed out of the gate with a 24-0 advantage at the end of the first quarter. Meanwhile, the Dolphins, namely Woodley, struggled. In the second quarter, Woodley was placed by Strzok, and like my grandfather used to say, all hell broke loose. Strzok would lead the Dolphins back in the game that has become one of the greatest postseason games in NFL history. Not only did Strzok erase a 24-point deficit thanks to pinpoint passing and one of the greatest hook and lateral plays in NFL history, the Dolphins actually took the lead in the fourth. That was until Chargers quarterback Dan Fouts would tie the game with less than a minute to play. Ultimately, the Dolphins would lose in overtime, 41-38, but it wasn't Strzok's fault. Strzok finished the game with 403 yards passing and four touchdowns in a game the Dolphins franchise has called the greatest in the history of the team. There are times that a quarterback was brought in to take the reins of a team that had a legitimate Super Bowl aspirations and amid their misfortune, kept the team going and led them to the Super Bowl. One such instance was in 1979, when the Los Angeles Rams starting quarterback Pat Hayden went down late in the season and was replaced by young Vince Ferragamo and led the Rams to Super Bowl XIV. In that game, which I consider one of the best Super Bowls no one ever talks about, Ferragamo and the Rams had the Steelers on the ropes and led going into the fourth quarter. Several years ago, a similar thing happened up the coast in San Francisco when Jim Harbaugh had to when Jim Harbaugh had to replace Alex Smith with Colin Kaepernick, and he led the Niners to Super Bowl of 47, where when after the lights came back on, nearly led San Francisco to the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history and lost 34-31 to Baltimore. A few years later, another quarterback named Nick Foles came in and replaced the injured Carson Wentz at quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles and promptly led the Eagles, armed with the Philly Special, past the Patriots in Super Bowl 52, 41-33 in Minnesota. 
yet one of the best backup to Super Bowl hero stories took place during the 1990 NFL season. That year, the 49ers were looking to become the first team to win three straight Super Bowls. And that season, the New York Giants matched them win for win. On December 3, 1990, both teams played in one of the most anticipated games of Monday Night Football history as both teams entered the game at 10-1. The Niners would win that game seven in a 7-3 slugfest, but everyone knew these two teams wouldn't meet again in the playoffs. Or at least so we, so we thought. In week 15, disaster struck for the Giants when starting quarterback Phil Simms injured his foot against the Bills. In to replace, Phil's, in to replace Phil Simms was Jeff Hostetler, who started the season as the New York's third-string quarterback. Under Hostetler, the Giants would win their last two regular season games and go into the playoffs with a 13-3 record. In the divisional round, the Giants would knock off the Chicago Bears and would have their rematch with the 49ers at Candlestick with the Super Bowl on the line. Behind Hostetler, who had led the Giant New York despite a knee injury, the Giants overcame the Niners and denied the three-peat, beating the Niners 15-13 thanks to a last-second Matt Barr field goal. In the Super Bowl, with the backdrop of Operation Desert Storm, the Giants, behind Hosteller, upset the Buffalo Bills 20-19, a game that saw Hosteller pass for 222 yards and gave the Giants their second Super Bowl title in four years. So, you could see a backup quarterback come through in the clutch. And perhaps for Jets fans, Zach Wilson could very much do the very same thing. Right? Maybe? Just a reminder, if you happen to like what you hear here and you would like to hear more, please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast. Also, you could drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Also, you could follow us on Twitter or X, whichever you prefer, at historicallysp2. Coming up. We're going to do something a little different here on the podcast. We will revisit some of the greatest and most remarkable games in pro football history, but we will use the current week four matchups as our guide, including two memorable postseason games, one on a cold, windy day at Shea Stadium that saw a very low-scoring contest between two AFL powers and another between two former AFL teams that met for the first time in the playoffs in a high-scoring game at a stadium named for a sports writer that was located in a place called Mission Valley. Those games and much, much more coming up on this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast that gives you the best of sports from back in the day. This is once again the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, 
acrylic or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the program. You are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. And right now, we're going to do something a little bit different here on the show. Usually, in this spot, we have our top five sports history moments for the week. Yet, since this is indeed football season, we're going to start something called the Historically Speaking Matchups. Right now, on your calendar, it is the fourth week of the NFL season, and we're going to highlight five games that are on the schedule this week and highlight those games that are rematches of great and memorable games from back in the day. I think this is maybe both interesting and informative, especially for football fans and fans of sports history. And I like the idea, at least. But before we get into that, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors here at the Sports History Network, and that is Home Field Apparel. In some parts of the country, the climate is starting to change to that familiar fall feeling. That tingle that you feel is not just the pumpkin spice in your coffee. It is actually the thrill of college football season that is in full swing around the country. And since it is indeed college football season, dive into the history books with Home Field Apparel, the premium collegiate apparel brand from Indianapolis. Homefield crafts incredibly comfortable gear designed with iconic vintage nods to over 150 colleges, a library of history right there on your chest. Homefield is the Indiana Jones of collegiate apparel, uncovering hidden gems from school archives, unique mascots, logos, and even unforgettable moments frozen in time. Visit homefieldapparel.com and shop the archives. Homefield Apparel where comfort, nostalgia, and the spirit of college football history unite. Once again, that is homefieldapparel.com. Week 4 of the NFL's regular season, and right now, it's still way too early to really determine with any certainty what the remainder of the season has in store. Yet, the games on the schedule for this upcoming week Some of those are rematches of very familiar games from years past, and I'm sure that if you're listening and old enough, these games should bring back some memories. The first game on the list is the Thursday night game between the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers. They're longtime rivals. Both of these teams met in the 1993 wildcard round in the Silver Dome in Pontiac, Michigan. 
The Lions came in as division champs under head coach Wayne Fonts and led by the electrifying Barry Sanders. Meanwhile, the Packers under coach Mike Holmgren was making their first postseason appearances in 1982. The pack was paced by the gunslinger from Kill, Mississippi named Brett Favre and all-pro receiver Sterling Sharp. In the third quarter, with the Lions leading 10-7, Favre was victimized by defensive back Mel Jenkins and he sprinted 15 yards for a touchdown to give Detroit a 17-7 lead. But the Packers would rally, as they had become accustomed to under Favre. Later in the quarter, Favre would find Sharp for a 29-yard touchdown. Then, the Lions would be denied a touchdown that might have put the game away by defensive back George Teague, who, ran the, who outran the Lions for a 101-yard pick six to give the Green Bay a 21-17 lead. But, back comes the Lions, led by quarterback Eric Kramer. Remember that guy? Detroit would retake the lead when Derek Moore scored from 9 yards out to make the score 24-21. However, late in the fourth quarter, the game's signature play. Favre, while scrambling to his left, fires the ball across his body and clear across the field, scraping the roof of the Silver Dome and finding a sprinting Sterling Sharp striding into the end zone for a game winner 28-24. Favre would pass for 204 yards and three touchdowns while his counterpart, Eric Kramer, had passed for 248 yards and a touchdown and buttoned through two interceptions. The Packers would eventually advance that year to the NFC Championship game before losing to Dallas 27-17. The next game on the historically speaking matchups of list for week four of the NFL that took place on December 17, 1967 at the historic Los Angeles Coliseum. It was a showdown for the Coastal Division title between the Baltimore Colts, led by John Unitas, taking on the fearsome foursome and the Los Angeles Rams. Now, both teams entered the game with identical 11-1-2 records as both teams played to a 24-24 tie earlier the year on, on October the 15th. The stakes of this game were high and simple. Back then, only the four division winners would advance to the postseason. There were no wild cards. That meant this was a de facto playoff game and the winner goes to the playoffs. Meanwhile, the loser, with only two losses, would miss the postseason. And as it turned out, the hype was bigger than the game. The Rams defense, led by Merlin Olsen Deacon, and Deacon Jones, sacked United seven times as the Rams blew out the Colts 34-10, giving the Rams and head coach George Allen the Coastal Division title. Offensively, it was also the passing of Rams quarterback Roman Gabriel that gave the Los Angeles the edge. He finished that afternoon by going 18 of 22 for 257 yards and three touchdowns. One of them, an 80-yard bomb to wide receiver Jack Snow in the second quarter. The win propelled the Rams to the playoffs where they would eventually lose the following week to the Packers in Milwaukee. Ten years later, the third game of our five, historically speaking, matchups took place on this occasion in the Louisiana Superdome. And in this particular matchup, history was made. On December 11, 1977, the Saints, coming into that afternoon with a record of 3-9, 
took on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who was 0-10 on the season, and still, still looking for that elusive first win in franchise history. The Bucks, the Bucks losing streak had now reached 26 consecutive games, but to the delight of fans of Central Florida and the consternation of Saints fans along the Gulf Coast, it would be the Saints that would allow the Bucks streak of futility to end. Tampa Bay behind two interception returns for touchdowns in the third quarter victimizing Archie Manning and later a defensive fumble recovery in the end zone would be the key as the Bucks buried the Saints 33-14 for Tampa Bay's first win in franchise history. And as it would be the case for most for more of their recent history, the Buccaneers defense was key to victory. Three seasons later, in the fourth of our historically speaking matchups, this took place in an area of Southern California known as Mission Valley. For the first time in their long and storied rivalry dating back to the days of the American Football League, the Oakland Raiders traveled to San Diego and faced the Chargers in a playoff game. And it wasn't just any playoff game. This was for all the marbles in the AFC with the winner going to Super Bowl 15 in New Orleans to face the Philadelphia Eagles. Both offenses scored quickly. The Raiders scored on their first possession, a 65-yard pass from Jim Plunkett to tight end Raymond Chester. The Chargers responded with a big play themselves, a 48-yard touchdown pass from Dan Fouts to Charlie Joyner. However, for the remainder of the first half, it was all Raiders who was looking to be just the second wild card to reach the team to reach the Super Bowl as a wild card. Now Oakland held a 28 to 14 lead at the half, but the Chargers would rally. And in the fourth quarter, they got to within a touchdown. But Raider, but the Raider running game put the game away and ran out the clock behind the legs of Mark Van Egan and also behind the legs of Jim Blunkett. The Raiders ended up winning the game 34-27 and advancing the Super Bowl in New Orleans and ultimately beating the Eagles in Super Bowl 15. And finally, the fifth and final game of the historically speaking matchups for Week 4 took place 11 years earlier in 1969. Two other teams whose lineage could be traced back to the time of the American Football League. In fact, they were still in the AFL when this game took place on December 20, 1969. In a cold and windy Shea Stadium in Queens, and how else would would it be in December in Queens, the homestanding and defending Super Bowl champion New York Jets, now let's let that sink in for a second, defending Super Bowl champion New York Jets. They would be hosting the Kansas City Chiefs in the divisional round of the AFL playoffs. The winner of this game would take on the Oakland Raiders in the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum the next week who earned a bye. This game would be a low-scoring defensive slugfest as both teams had to overcome outstanding defense and wintry conditions in New York. The key plays of the game took place all in the second half. Late in the third quarter, with the Chiefs holding a very precarious 6-3 lead, the Jets found themselves deep in Chiefs territory thanks to a pass interference penalty by Kansas City defensive back Hall of Famer Emmett Thomas. Yet, the Chiefs, behind key defensive plays by Willie Lanier and Jim Lynch, 
denied the Jets the end zone and they had to settle for a Jim Turner field goal. On the ensuing drive, the score tied at six. The game's signature play. Kansas City quarterback Lynn Dawson connected on a 61-yard bomb to Otis Taylor to set up the game's only touchdown, a 19-yard pass from Dawson to Gloucester Richardson in the back of the end zone to give Kansas City ultimately the 13-6 the win, denying the Jets back-to-back -back Super Bowls. Kansas City would actually eventually beat the Raiders and end the AFL by claiming the league's second consecutive Super Bowl, beating the Vikings 23-7 in Super Bowl IV in New Orleans. And coming up next to conclude the show is our shout-out segment. And in this edition, we're going to be sending out two shout-outs, and both of them are actually related. One, we're going to be sending a shout out to perhaps the greatest sports documentary ever made and one of my all-time personal favorites. And it was directed by one of America's greatest storytellers. And within that film, one of the many people he highlights unfortunately passed away this week. More on that after the break. And you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice! In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the show. And right now, this is the final segment of the show, which is what I would like to call the shout out. And this is where we send a shout out to a particular athlete or event or some consequence or thing in sports history that happened and also in this segment i sometimes show how some of these sports historical moments impacted me as a person or how i saw them at the time it was september the 18th 1994. at the time i was a student at southern university located in baton rouge louisiana going through another fall semester you know navigating going to class 
who the football team, the Southern Jaguars, are going to be playing that upcoming Saturday and determining who was going to have the best after party that Saturday night. Well, as I was kind of halfway studying, to be honest, I wasn't really studying all the way, but halfway studying, kind of paying attention to what was on TV, I think I was studying Spanish or maybe it was economics. I'm not exactly sure what. But as I turned the television on and sort of began to flip through the channels, all eight of them, we didn't exactly have cable yet on campus, I stumbled upon this channel that was showing old-time pictures of baseball players that seemed to be from like the early to mid-1800s. It was the local PBS station, and I heard a very familiar voice that was narrating the program, and I and it actually literally stopped me in my tracks. Unbeknownst to me, I had stumbled upon the first episode or inning of Baseball by Ken Burns. Needless to say, I was enthralled. Now, to give you a peek behind the curtain here into my childhood, I had fell hopelessly in love with sports documentaries, most notably NFL films, and anybody who knew me as a child knew. I had VHS tapes that was filled to the gills with Super Bowl highlights and anything that had John Facenda's voice attached to it. To say I was hooked was an understatement, but this documentary, Baseball, was the was basically by far the most interesting and most in-depth sports-related biopic I had ever seen. I thought I knew baseball history, but after watching it religiously for the next nine nights in my dorm room at Jesse Owens Hall at Southern University, I quickly realized I didn't know anything. Narrated by former anchor of the NBC Nightly News, John Chancellor, it was in nine parts or fittingly innings and it broke down the history of the game mostly by decades. The first inning or first episode titled Our Game, it introduced the game and its complicated origin and the growing pains as it went through the 19th century. The second inning, Something Like a War, chronicles baseball's growth from 1900 to 1910 with the introduction of the World Series and the formation of the American League and the personal rivalry between Ty Cobb and Honus Wagner. The third inning, The Faith of 50 Million People, baseball had never been more popular but towards the end of the decade and the episode, it explores into unbelievably great detail the infamous Black Sox scandal of 1919. The fourth inning, the National Heirloom, it highlighted the 1920s. Baseballs needed a distraction from the Black Sox scandal and boy did it get one when Babe Ruth came along. It highlighted baseball during the roaring 1920s and it showed the building of Yankee Stadium, the beginning of the Negro Leagues, and the early dominance of the New York Yankees. The fifth inning, Shadow Ball, actually one of my favorite episodes of the series, it was talked about baseball in the 1930s, which was devastated by the Great Depression, but black baseball, most notably the Negro Leagues, flourished as never before and Ken Burns highlighted some of the biggest names in Negro League history such as Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, and made former Negro League star John Jordan Buck O'Neill an overnight star. 
The episode also introduces baseball legends like Bob Feller and Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. The sixth inning, the national pastime, this episode opens up with baseball right before America's entry into World War II. With the summer of 1941, in which that year you had Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, Ted Williams' quest for batting over 400, and the pennant winners of the National League, the hapless Brooklyn Dodgers. And speaking of the Dodgers, the episode also highlights Jackie Robinson's entry into Major League Baseball in 1947. The seventh inning, the capital of baseball, covers baseball in the 1950s in New York City's domination of the sport. Three teams in Metro New York, the Dodgers, the Yankees, and the Giants, emphasized their greatness, which was the golden age of baseball. And yet, by the end of the episode and the decade, the Giants and Dodgers would break the New York City's heart and leave for the West Coast that left an empty shell in the soul of New York. And of course, midway through the episode, the seventh inning stretch. The eighth inning, a whole new ball game, baseball in the 1960s, which is my favorite episode also. And with the backdrop of the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Movement, baseball began to fall behind in popularity with pro football. But this episode highlights two dominant pitchers, Sandy Koufax and Bob Gibson. It also has Roger Maris' home run chase of Babe Ruth, and of course it concludes with the triumph of the Miracle Mets of 1969. And the ninth inning, named Home, it covers baseball between 1970 to roughly 1992. And in the beginning of the episode, it highlights the dominance of the Baltimore Orioles and the remarkable play of Oriole third baseman, the late Brooks Robinson. Now sadly, Robinson died earlier this week at the age of 86. Robinson was an 18-time All-Star, 16-time Gold Glove winner. He was also part of two World Championship teams in Baltimore, including winning Series MVP in the 1970 series when he defeated the Cincinnati Reds. Now, whenever you thought of Brooks Robinson, whenever he comes to mind, most people like myself remember the play that he made during that series. Robbing Lee May of an extra base hit down the third baseline at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati and firing a perfect strike to first baseman Boo Powell to get Lee out by maybe a quarter of a step. Brooks Robinson holds a special place in my heart because he was the first legendary baseball player I ever read about as a kid. Also in that final episode was Roberto Clemente and his heroics against those very same Orioles of the following year in 1971 and his untimely death a year later after getting career hit number 3000. Also in that decade was the beginning of free agency, the Oakland A's dynasty, the Pirates of the late 70s and We Are Family, collusion and epic disappointments of the Boston Red Sox from 1975 series through the Bucky Dent through Bill Buckner in the 1986 World Series. To me, this was the best sports documentary ever done and will always have a special place in my heart. Alongside Brooks Robinson. And folks, that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And please, if you have not done so already, Please subscribe wherever you hear this podcast if you like 
what you hear. Also, if you want to drop us a line, you can also do that at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or you could check us out periodically on Twitter or X at historicallysp2. And remember, please don't keep this great podcast a secret. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbor. Hell, tell a passerby on the street if you think they like sports history. And this episode comes to you from the Bill King Memorial Studios in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises, located in scenic suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. And until next time, stay cool and stay blessed. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.